0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachron, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking with Andrew S. Curran, William Armstrong Professor of the Humanities at Wesleyan University. Andrew is co-editor, along with the legendary Henry Louis Gates Jr., of Who's Black and Why, a hidden chapter from the 18th century invention of race. The brilliance of this project stems from the manner in which it makes primary documents accessible to modern-day audiences, Andrew and Henry present essays written for a contest sponsored by Bordeaux's Royal Academy of Sciences in 1739 on the origins of blackness. Through translations and detailed introductions, the authors help us understand the birth of race and racism in the West. Andrew, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks, Caleb. Of course. Uh, you know, before before jumping into the book, uh, you you know, you have uh, I, I think some. Some uh, interesting background and story to tell about you and your co-author. So I was wondering if you could just tell me about yourself and your co-author. Sure. Uh,
2: well, I'll give myself. I'll give a, give you a little background on, on myself because that's that leads to the the story of how uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. I'll call him Skip uh, got in touch with me. So um, I've always been interested uh, in, during graduate school. I was at NYU for my PhD uh, in French studies. I was always interested in uh, scientific academy debates. I thought it was a really interesting kind of gateway into the exoticism of the past. I studied the eighteenth century, obviously. And so my first book was on uh, human monstrosity and the debates between uh, providentialists, the people who believed that this was uh, something that came out of God's will, and the people who saw, thought it was accidents. And I realized the people who had worked on this topic, it was a huge debate in the eighteenth century, uh, people who kind of debated the, the uh, what it meant when a two-headed baby was born. Always said something also about Africans and race, and so my second project was kind of built, uh, born out of my fr- out of the first one, uh, and that project uh, was uh, uh, something called the Anatomy of Blackness, which I did, and that is uh, an intellectual history of uh, the uh, where race came from, which I think is quite different from some of the other. Other books out there on that subject, and that it breaks uh, breaks it down into uh, several thematic categories, which were the preoccupations of the time. Um, your uh, 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 the boss of New Books Network, uh, Marshall Poe. Uh, you know, when he was talking about this book, which he read, said, "You know, it's really interesting that you read all these authors in order to kind of uh, channel the 18th century, and that's exactly what I did in this book. I, I couldn't figure out." I wanted to tell this story, so I read deeply, deeply, as 18th-century uh, people did. So I read the travel logs, read this, the the, uh, the medical texts, and I worked through that whole question. Um, and uh, it gave me a, a lot of information and knowledge about about race. And one of the things I stumbled upon while working on this book was this this um, this uh, contest that took place at the Bordeaux Royal Academy of Sciences in 1739. That's when the call for papers went out and the papers came in 1741. Skip had also heard about it too um, at Harvard and he saw that I had written maybe seven or eight pages on this and this is why he got in touch with me. In the meantime, uh, you, you asked about my uh, what i have been up to. Um, I also have a, a kind of a journalistic side to uh, what I do and I've o- enjoyed talking to wider audiences. So I've done a bit of journalism And one of the things I did was I wrote an article celebrating the birthday of Denis Diderot, Denis Diderot, in 2013. And that led to a biography of um, of Diderot, which I I brought out in 2019, which was really great as a kind of a public intellectual type uh, endeavor in, in, in book. And it's interesting that I'm working on something right now, which I call The Racemakers, which is under contract with other press. And this is a book that actually combines biography with race. It's a it's a, what I think is probably the first biographical study of race going from Louis XIV to Jefferson. So, I'm combining the stuff I did with Diderot with uh, the kind of work I did with Skip and also earlier with Anatomy of, Black, Anatomy of Blackness. So, there it is. Now, I guess you asked, well, how, how Skip got in touch with me. It was really funny. The day that um, the uh, Diderot book came out, which I think was January 15, 2019. He, I got a phone call from him, and it was a very strange moment because I thought it was uh, a, a prank um, because it was a very big day for me that day, a lot of different things going on, and uh, he proposed to, the, to do this book. So, you know, the next project was already done by the time uh, you know this, the, the Diderot book had come out in 2019 and came out uh, you know, three years later after a lot of work.
0: Yeah, that must be a really exciting, uh, phone call. I'm sure, you know, <laughs> most people who have any, uh, un- who know any historic modern day historian, uh, if they know someone, it's probably, it- it's probably him. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, must, but that must've been very exciting. Uh, you know, uh, this work that you, that you end up doing, uh, together, you look at, uh, the, this essay contest. So I was wondering what it was like looking at, at the archives, uh, and, what actual work went into preparing it for a modern day audience.
2: What's interesting about this contest and all scientific contests from the 18th century is that uh, it was a very democratic process on the one hand, which is to say that it was open to anybody who had a, had a pen or a quill and they could send something in. So uh, the, uh, the other side of the coin is that the academy is a very elitist uh, institution. And so they were actually receiving things from all over the, all over the, uh, all over Europe, and uh, for all their contests. And every year they'd have a, a contest or two contests. And in this in this case, uh, the uh, essays came in 1741, and and uh, they were very uneven. Um, and it's actually very hard to uh, to get through some of them because the people wrote on both sides of the paper, and there's this bizarre cross hatching thing that goes on very difficult uh, to uh, to parse some of the manuscripts and so you know I had looked at these things and had gotten a general gist of them uh, uh, in 2011 and here uh, we had professional uh, translators who you know worked on this and you know they came up with a typescript and then we worked from that as well one of the big big debates we had about these things was you know should we leave them and again I Emphasize the fact these were amateurs in some cases. We uh, these were not you know, the, kind of the great figureheads of the Enlightenment. Um, and part of that is really interesting because you get to see what Joe Sixpack is thinking about this you know uh, on a daily basis. And it, it, then there's a huge cross section of different kinds of explanations, which I suspect we'll get into a little bit later. But um, at the you know do the question that you know Skip and I asked ourselves: uh, Should we leave this in the, in the in the language of the 18th century, which is sometimes you know torturous syntax? In Latin, written by people who are not great scholars of Latin, should we leave it like that, or should you know uh, we uh, put it into more modern English? And I really wanted to put it in modern day English, and we did that, which makes it much more understandable. Particularly since there's a huge critical apparatus that goes along with this thing, so you can you can you can actually uh, uh, f- read this read the read the thing, and it's actually quite legible and, and quite enjoyable. And strange sometimes to see how. These people were coming up with um, a, a variety of different explanations. So there's a lot of archival archival research and, and manuscript preparation. I looked around a lot for things written uh, about the contest, and uh, the, at the time in the 1730s, that a terrible, terrible secretary, and I only found one uh, assessment of the uh, contest, which must have been written, you know written in 1741, and it was just uh, just. It looked like the uh, the secretary was drunk or falling asleep because it was completely illegible; it didn't make any sense. But you could see that he was sitting around while well, this was going on. And uh, you know, later secretaries were much better. And uh, I was very envious of people who were working on later eras because you could see what was going on in the meetings about the contest, as opposed to here it was really, really impossible.
0: What was the the Bordeaux Royal Academy of Sciences and? Why did you decide that the the essay contest or this particular essay contest would be uh, the subject of this book?
2: Well, first, the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences is, uh, is something of a misnomer uh, in that uh, although it was known as the Academy of Sciences, it really was a, uh, essentially a gentleman's club interested in a wide variety of you know Enlightenment concerns. It was uh, um, there were forty members uh, about. Um, Twenty-five or thirty at any given time were called ordinary members. These were members of the aristocracy and actually the parliament. And Montesquieu, for example, was a member of the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences, and actually, it's uh, 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 he's president of the of the of the of the parliament at the same time. So it's really interesting to see that there's this elite component of people who actually didn't have great expertise in science. Not necessarily; they're they're mostly kind of running vineyards or you know very rich rentiers uh, and aristocrats, magistrates, judges. And then there were, you know, 10 people who are called associate members who actually had expertise in various, member, in various areas. But they were kind of uh, um, had a, sec- sec- you know, a second class kind of citizenship uh, compared to the, the, these people. So they felt, you know, their, their, inst- their kind of uh, uh, goal was to disseminate knowledge, um, which is why they had these contests. They had uh, general meetings for the uh, people of Bordeaux to come to once or twice a year. And uh, I think it's important to kind of contrast these academies with universities at the time. We now kind of think of them as somewhat synonymous as institutions of higher learning. Well the universities at the time were actually very much designed to replicate knowledge, not create new knowledge. There was no research being done per se in universities say of Paris. The University of Paris was a vocational school. Producing lawyers, and theologians, and doctors, and that—that's that, uh, uh, pretty much it, right? So, um, and they would not have been engaged with something, something along these lines. Whereas these academies were um, saw themselves as really part and parcel of the Enlightenment uh, project, if you want to call it that. And so, they were actively engaged in creating new things, doing research, publishing papers. They—they they were the. Uh, the uh, the the sites where new knowledge was being produced and disseminated, and uh, they uh, the Bordeaux Academy of Sciences uh, were, uh, came into existence in 1711. Um, most scientific academies uh, came into ex- existence in the you know the 17th century. The big ones, uh, thanks to uh, Louis the 14th, and uh, Colbert is uh, the second in charge during much of his reign. And you know the same thing happens both in uh, England and you know the United States. Uh, the American Philosophical Association, in Philadelphia, is, is coming out of the same ethos of creating knowledge uh, for the 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 uh, the betterment of mankind. Uh, and I put those and put that in quotes. So that's what's kind of going on. This is a place for people to get together to create knowledge, to talk about ideas, and uh, the. The one of the ways they reach out to the outside world, as I said, is through these uh, these contests.
0: What ex- what exactly was the question that they were asking? And on top of that, you know, what were they actually after in asking this question?
2: Yeah. So if you were to you know look at the question itself, it would be, I mean, if I were to parse it, it would be you know, what is the source of black hair and skin, essentially? And the the, the longer Question is what is the source of the degeneration of black skin and black hair, and so this is uh, seems to be a pretty kind of focused question, but it's a, a question that's linked to the larger preoccupation that had been going on for two thousand five hundred years, and that's the source of black skin, which had been uh, uh, something that had amazed people, uh, amazed uh, people who are non Africans. Um, uh, for a long time from Herodotus on through into the 18th century. And so it, even before the Bordeaux Academy was founded, one of the, the, um, the people who had actually uh, helped create the Academy had uh, given a paper right, right before it was founded in 1711, I think, uh, on blackness. And clearly uh, uh, this was a, a preoccupation for a number of people in the Bordeaux Academy. I can't prove it, but I suspect that Montesquieu was one of the driving forces behind this. Uh, in 1717, he uh, um, uh, he gave a paper. We just have fragments of it. He gave a paper on the source of different intelligences in different climates. So already this idea that climate not only affected skin, but perhaps intelligence was in the air. And there were a number of other kind of much more kind of physiological and proto-anthropological questions asked as contests in the 1720s and 30s. And then all of a sudden, you get this question in 1739, which is much more focused uh, on the question of blackness. And and the the, the question may seem seem kind of insignificant in and of itself, but what's really fascinating is this is a a moment when science is claiming the right to determine uh, kind of the conceptual status of a particular group of people, and uh, um, this is. Um, significant in that uh, the question of race, and by the way, the term doesn't really exist at this point. It's not in the question. The question of race was, and our human varieties, let's call them, was the purview or jurisdiction of the church uh, uh, because uh, the major explanations, the major, major kind of anthropological, in quotes, explanations for humankind uh, were supplied by the Old Testament not by uh, these rogue anthropologists and naturalists, and of course, it's shifting at this point. And the, the uh, Bordeaux Academy of Science, by publishing this call for papers, is really saying, "This is now on us. We are going to decide."
0: So you mentioned that you know anyone could respond to the question and participate in the in the contest, uh, but can you give us a, a sort of sense, of picture of? Who some of the respondents were, what they were like, and and what they believed.
2: Right. So, uh, what's interesting about these contests is that they were uh, you would submit you would submit your essay anonymously, and at the end of your essay, you would leave you put up a little aphorism, you know, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And then you'd send another envelope with that same aphorism and your address in it, and so that you would know who the people were but and you, would, you wouldn't be judging the quality of the essay um, by looking at the names. I explain all this because we don't know who a lot of the people were because the, uh, again, probably the, that excellent secretary dumped most of the uh, second letters. And I was able to find uh, the names of several of them by cross-referencing various things. I looked around at obituaries, <laughs> looked at, and I did a, various Google searches on particular word, strange word combinations until I got a hit on a couple and and, it, um, and found out that uh, one of them uh, was a guy by the name of Pierre Barre, which is B-A-R-R-E-R-E. who was an anatomist who had been to Guiana, had done dissections on Africans while he was in Guiana and wrote about it about 10 or 15 years later on. Later, So uh, there's the there's anatomists. There are a lot of theologians Unnamed theologians who were uh, grappling with Old Testament explanations of the uh, of where the different human varieties came, and then you know there's all sorts of subsequent exegesis, and they would kind of combine them t- with uh, biblical ideas, and sometimes they would fuse the Bible with um, clim- climatological explanations. Um, there were people writing from as far as uh, Ireland. Theologian. There was somebody who was the University of Uppsala, who was kicked out or something. He was chased out of Sweden because he he gave a little biographical kind of assessment of himself. We don't know who this was exactly. Uh, uh, we don't really know, know much about him. Um, and uh, but he was at the university at the same time with Linnaeus, which is pretty interesting. Um, and uh, also. There was a person, we don't know who it is, but who was claimed to have been the great, great, great grandson of somebody who had been taken from Africa, who claimed that the climate was so powerful that he had uh, become white over many generations because he was living in Germany. So there's a, a wide variety of people uh, uh, sending in explanations, generally, you know, naturalists, gentlemen naturalists, uh, climatological kind of folks. Um, uh, this one anatomist and people who had also been thinking about the possibility of classification. So those are the kind of the, the major um, kind of explanations. I suspect we'll get back into that a little bit later on. And alas, I can't give you a, a rundown of all the, you know, the names, exactly what they were doing. We can kind of infer from the way they're writing who they were, whether they're theologians or whether they were people who had, uh, uh, you know, um, who were uh, maybe rich aristocrats because you can see that they had a beautiful... Um, uh, secretary writing out their their rights, so they'd have a somebody you know a copyist who would be kind of copying what they wrote in beautiful script on better paper. So it's interesting there's there's a lot of detective work and a you know, good deal of speculation.
0: Yeah, some of the explanations uh, given are of a religious nature, uh, and uh, there there are you know religious explanations that have uh, that are discussed, you know have been discussed not just in this book, but I was wondering if you could give a little bit of an overview of some of those. Uh, the religious views that that are discussed.
2: Yes. Um, so let me start, let me preface this by uh, saying that one of the big debates uh, taking place in the 17th among a small group of people and during the 18th during a larger group of people and during the 19th during by a much bigger group of people was the debate on human origins. And clearly, if you think about uh, what happens in the uh, Old Testament, you have Noah, and his, Noah showing up um, with his ship that in the uh, the waters part and, or the waters recede rather, and he's hanging out with his three sons. And um, uh, um, well, there's the story of Ham, we can get to it at one point, but Ham, Japheth and Shem are there and they are gonna take off all over the world and populate the world. And so there's an idea of what we call monogenesis, the idea that there was one human origin and this is a parable. It's interpreted either literally by some people. If you go to that creationist, movie, uh, uh, creationist mu- museum in Ohio, they look at this very literally, or it's seen as, a figurative, seen, seen as figurative or as a parable by many other people. But the idea is that there was one group of people which allows Catholicism to say that this is a universal type religion for everybody. And it's substantiated both uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament by Paul, right? So the the idea of monogenesis is very important. Um, but um, what happens in the uh, 15th century with the discovery of the new world uh, is that people are saying, whoa, no one's mentioned the new world in the Bible. We've got this new place and we have all these Amerindians and they don't look that different from us, but how did they get there? And why didn't the Bible mention this? And so this becomes a uh, Quandary for people, and some of the explanations in the book that were that were submitted reflect this. And uh, uh, people who believe that there was different origins are called polygenists. So you get the monogenists, one origin; polygenists, separate origins. So people were talking about the fact that possibly there were different origins for human people. What does that imply? It implies different kind of political status as well, right? So now some of the examples here, um, you know, we have you know Adam and Eve. Adam or Eve was black and Adam was half black. It was kind of a proto-biological and also religious type explanation. We have uh, the idea that blackness is a mark of God denoting selfishness. Uh, We have other ideas too. God made all people white, but some unknown exterior cause generated blackness. There you have an accidentalism mixed in with kind of God as well. Um, We have uh, almost an adaptation idea. evolution doesn't exist but the idea that black skin is a god-given gift which allows people to live in the torrid zone and we have God the moral of the Old Testament uh, angry God who uh, uh, said that um, there that uh, you know blacks had a moral defect in their parents a perverse disposition of the mind and this turned their progeny black so there's a lot of different uh, explanations that have to do with religion and religion is really the the the, the Arena where a lot of these things are being um, fought out or fought about early on, before the naturalists take over. And so, really, we're we're looking at how these people, these explanations, being are being kind of pushed to the side, and 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 instead, um, you know, the academy is obviously interested in much more physical explanations for blackness. They're not interested in these biblical ones. So I suspect they just toss those ones to the side, and we're much more interested in. In uh, explanations such as the degeneration uh, thing, which was part of the part of the question, well, how do you explain the degeneration of that? And I think most Americans or Anglo-Americans know the word degeneration either from cartoons, old cartoons, if you still see it, old cartoons, where uh, sometimes people call people degenerates. I think like Bugs Bunny, and then, uh, uh, but that comes directly from the idea that. Um, in certain areas, certain groups, of people degenerated and became morally corrupt or physically inferior and so on and so forth. The idea of a degeneration from a superior prototype. Again, this is the exact opposite of evolution, which would have the idea that you know a certain group of people would go to a certain environment and they would adapt to that environment. And through natural selection, the people left around would improve. Right, And it, according to degeneration, it's the exact opposite. So you have an initially superior group of people who move on to a different climate, and then they degenerate, they become uh, inferior, weaker. And that's what um, the famous uh, naturalist uh, Buffon said about Americans in general. And this is something that made Thomas Jefferson absolutely furious. So um, it's all linked up with uh, initially uh, um, the religious ideas, but degeneration was interested in that it was compatible with the Bible, right? So, if you think about the fact that um, uh, you know the ex- explanation of Noah and his three sons, that could be seen as compatible with climate theory and also degeneration,
0: right? And like the fall of the fall of man, it, it, it connects well there. Uh, you, the, some of the other explanations uh, are are scientific in nature, and let's let's put scientific in air quotes. Uh, <laughs> what would <laughs> You you mentioned a little bit some of the scientific explanations, but uh, but what, what was the, sort of the nature of some of the scientific explanations given, and how do they differ from the religious uh, explanations?
2: Yeah, I would say that the vast majority were, um, you know, bioclimatic, if you want to call it that. So, um, you know, the idea is since the sun is the hottest in the torrid zone, it follows Africans have the darkest skin. There are all sorts of other strange things that are linked to climate and also humoral theory. Uh, the kind of um, the the idea that we all have a series of different humors uh, circulating in our body, and then if we are exposed to um, and this is a kind of Hippocratic notion. If you're exposed to various types of heat or cold, then your body responds to, to that. And so, if you have too much bile, you might be melancholic. You know, uh, we he- we still hear vestiges of humoral theory when you talk about a colicky baby, right? So, this is. This is, um, you know, an important idea. It also allows people to say that that uh, blacks are melancholic, suffer from melancholy, not only because of weather, but because of an abundance of bile. So there's that's that's one of the things that that goes on. And um, and there uh, you know there's there's some other very strange ones. There's uh, the uh, explanation of the maternal imagination, which we might think is supernatural. But for the 18th century, this is seen as a perfectly natural idea—the idea, the idea, the, uh, the notion or the theory that uh, an improperly stimulated uh, maternal imagination. So a woman is pregnant, and she sees something, and it's so strong that it imprints on her uh, imagination, and it and it has a direct effect on the baby. So if you were thinking about um, uh, a a black man during conception. Uh, even with a with a well while sleeping with a a white man, and this is something that Skip thought was just absolutely hilarious. Then you would have a black baby. So that's that's a that's an actually natural explanation. There are other explanations too, um, you know, based on Newtonian optics. Somebody was talking that talking about the fact that blackness might result from the absorption of light. There was vapors arise uh, emanating from the skin. There is also an idea of something much more elemental, which is quite interesting because it anchors blackness to heredity. So, uh, and this is a notion that was floating around figuratively during antiquity, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, by you know among travelers such as Strabo, um, and and uh, but in the eighteenth century, certain people said that Africans had darkened sperm, and the and anat- anatomical things we. We'll get back to in a second, the idea that darkened semen would actually be the source of blackness later on. So, it had nothing to do with the climate. It was something that was physiological, it was inside. And again, we're seeing a, a debate among people who believed in natural explanations between the climatologists and the people who were thinking that something was in the inside. And this is really significant because it it, mean, it means that race is moving from something which is accidental on the outside to something that's inside. And that I think is one of the big things that happens during the 18th century, and accelerates tremendously in subsequent decades. Um, the the idea that the uh, the heat and the and the torrid zone damaged the um, African bodies was really almost universally accepted by m- people both among the anatomists and also the climate theorists, and they thought um, that there was uh, you know you know the one of the anatomists we I, I talked about. Uh, Barrer, and he's followed by a number of other people who will do uh, these dissection studies who believe that uh, there is a, uh, Africans have black bile, they've got black brains, they've got black sperm. It just goes on and on and on. And This is, again, as I, I said, the uh, the, the, uh, the movement of race, the concept of race moving from the outside to inside, because it's not only an accidental thing, but it's something that's replicated. It's replicated and passed on, and it, and it actually colors everything else. So um, those are some of the natural explanations. I think um, you know again it's bioclimatic, humoral, uh, and then genealogical. I think that the the most important natural explanation is going to come forward a few years after um, uh, the contest, and maybe prompted by the contest, and that's uh, Buffon, who's B U F F O N. He wrote this book called The Natural History, in which he talked about this. he, he put forward this enormous, comprehensive um description of the world's people and said they came about through degeneration the idea that there was this original white prototype that degenerated in different climates and there are a lot of uh, several articles kind of hint at this during the, uh, for the in the essays for, for the contest they didn't develop the entire theory and so that's the idea of a <clears throat> kind of a genealogical explanation so you've got taxonomy you've got genealogical you've got humoral you've got clim- uh, you know climatological explanations We didn't really talk too much about, you know, we're talking about causes and explanations, but I should probably uh, add here that um, the idea of taxonomy is is very important. And by taxonomy, I'm talking about human classification. During the 18th century, early on, uh, humans were not part of the animal kingdom, which, you know, is very surprising to most people. They were seen as separate. Uh, Descartes said that uh, humans, uh, had souls and animals were more like machines. And other people also uh, really thought that, you know, conceptually, humankind was separate. Um, maybe a fallen being um, uh, in God's eyes, but yet the the highest, uh, the highest of all creatures on earth, and quite different from animals. And so they um, <clears throat> they were not uh, classed with animals in uh, the various bestiaries and taxonomy. They're always separate. But um, one of the things that happens in the eight, late 17th century uh, is that humans are classed by this guy named François Bernier in 1684. More importantly, in the 18th century, in 1735, which is about you know five years or six years before they decide the contest, Linnaeus, uh, Carl Linnaeus, the great Swedish botanist and naturalist uh, in his Systema um, uh does class humans among animals, and this is. Really, uh, an, a heterodox notion for a lot of people during the 18th century. And so, there's an, uh, um, this. I, people are citing, several uh, writers uh, are going to be citing uh, Linnaeus in their essays. So, you can see that the idea that humans are part of this uh, classification scheme, they're, they're part of the animal kingdom, they can be subjected to the same methodologies we use to scrutinize animals, anatomy, and uh, uh, and, and hybridization, there's all sorts of things that are kind of opened up when you stop thinking about humans from a religious point of view. So those are the kind of a, a quick summary of the scientific things going on in these essays. This was really uh, very interesting to juxtapose. And if you think of this as a core sample, as a focus group, you realize that there is, you know, we talk about race as if it's moving in one direction. Well, there's an enormous discussion going on throughout most of the 18th century
1: That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Something interesting about the uh, the essay contest is that there was no winner chosen. Uh, and I was wondering if you, if you could uh, tell us why there was no winner. So uh, I alluded to the the
2: meeting that was held at the Bordeaux Academy in, I think it was April or May 1741, which would have taken place in this beautiful uh, a townhouse that was donated by one of the members to the academy in 1739. So they're sitting around this big room, maybe not everybody, but you know, a, a, a select group of people who are vetting the manuscripts. They have the discussion and the secretary takes crappy notes. So I don't know exactly what happens there, but what I, in a, a, a little snippet in a magazine article, um, somebody said that, uh, a journalist wrote that um, the academy was not satisfied with the answers. So, um, that may or may not be the case. Uh, it may be that the best answer was the one from the anatomist, which was really, um, uh, you know, very physiologically oriented, but it made no mention of anything that was compatible with the Bible. Now, I think they may have wanted something that was a little bit more, that would have made at least a nod, had made a nod to that. Um, I don't know. Um, they certainly did not want a polygenist explanation, which is why they put degeneration right in the title of the question. They wanted somebody to talk about how, how these people became so different because they're, they're, they were originally like us. That's really what the question was. So we don't know. Um, what we do know from the guy who published, and the anatomist published his, his essay uh, you know, several months later, is that he said he was encouraged to do so by several members of the academy. So we don't know exactly what happened. Um, but when we were looking for uh, information about uh, this, what would happen when someone um, went, when a contest was uh, a failure, is that in the 1720s, I believe, they decided that when they uh, missed out or when they didn't give money, they would take the money, invest it in the company of the Indies, which was a international trading company in a, uh, linked to the slave trade, which is Pretty interesting, given the the subject of the contest.
0: Yeah, so that so my follow up question then to the contest because I mean it's sort of implicit in the question about the degeneration of of races. It's obviously a racist question itself, uh, but you know what what was the sort of conception of racism? Were there different views on on racism? Uh, And also just the link to slavery, uh, you know, that as slavery ongoing, Atlantic slave trade being the backdrop to this question being asked.
2: Yeah. um, Let's first start with, um, you know, the relationship to race and slavery. First, you know, the term race doesn't really exist. One can argue that the kind of the function of race already exists because um, clearly there's a certain group of people who are being subject to Uh, horrific treatment, have an entirely different political and conceptual status. Um, But bizarrely enough, when people look back at what happens, say, in the 1710s, 1720s or so, the justification for slavery is not really based on, you know, appearance or skin. Um, It's not based on, it's based on the idea that Africans are giving up their physical freedom but getting eternal salvation. And that's kind of what you know. You know, somebody would think about uh, probably if they thought about slavery, they'd say, "Oh, well, that's really too bad." But this is what you know. Louis the Fourteenth said was good, and Louis the Thirteenth as well. So this is this was a justification this was kind of in the air, and um, uh, certainly people were beginning to question that a little bit more. And it's I think the uh, you know the jump way ahead in time. Uh, by the time people really start questioning slavery. And so the kind of liberal philosophers of the era, including Voltaire, we may get back to him in a second, but Voltaire and Montesquieu and um, uh, Diderot in particular, my buddy Diderot and uh, Renal um, and a, a number of number of people at Vécius start really attacking the slave trade and the traders and the justification of the slave trade. They're also anti-clerical. So they're more than happy to attack the uh, theological justification for for slavery as well. And when that happens, 1760s, 1770s, it's, it's pretty interesting to see that people go back to the, the, the kind of a proto-racial ideas floating around from the 1720s, 1730s, 1740s, and they marshal those as political arguments in favor of slavery. So, we really don't see kind of a racial... Justification of slavery until a little later, which is kind of hard to ex- hard to kind of grasp. There are exceptions, you know. I don't want to, you know oversimplify this process, but it's pretty clear that that's going on by the 1760s and seventeen seventies. Um, and uh, you know the the idea of racism uh, is, you know, what is racism? So race doesn't really exist quite, but but racism can exist in some ways because there is a, a certainly a kind of a, a implicit white superiority that's happening even if the word race and the kind of taxonomical um, ideas and the classification schemes don't exist yet, but they it really is already kind of in the air. In my new book, I talk about you know race before race in the first first section and um, and I think that you know, as I said uh, you were you were talking about, um, um, you know, what happens by 1770 that kind of leads us naturally to that second question, uh, which is part of the book. I'm not sure if you want to go there now or or what. I mean,
0: yeah. Let's <laughs> let's go
2: there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you, know, uh, you know, Caleb was asking about this, you know, the, the last third of the book or a little less is dedicated to a second contest. You know, when Skip and I were, were you know, delving deep into this whole thing, we we're working on the 1741 contest and, you know, we realized that there's a second contest and, uh, you know, initially like, oh my God, can we have to, we have to do all this, this new work. And we said, it's really worth it because it really shows a, a fundamental shift in the way this question was being examined. So in the 1740s, um, despite the fact that there are, you know, a number of people who have taken Africans, enslaved Africans, uh, Caribbean Africans back to Bordeaux. There is usually four or five hundred Africans are in Bordeaux in a given time. So Africa, you know, the 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 the, the, you know, the slave trade was happening, you know, present and and visible in Bordeaux, and so the idea of slavery was, you know, present in people's minds. And yet, the 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 question itself is very apolitical. It's like, what about the skin? What does this mean? And so, uh, you know, we talked about this a lot uh, when we. Got into the book. We we know knew that people were thinking about the slave trade, but they certainly didn't want to entertain questions on the, either the legality of the slave trade or the slave trade itself. Uh, Bordeaux was benefiting benefiting immensely from the slave trade. They were responsible for uh, deporting 150,000 slaves, and Bordeaux it's Bordeaux's population at its most, uh, you know. In the 18th century, it was you know about 100,000. So there were, they had actually been responsible for deporting more from Africa to the, the New World, um, more people than than actually lived in Bordeaux in a given time. Um, so they were you know fascinated by the uh, uh, slave trade. As I said, this was a political type thing. Whereas by the 1770s, as I said uh, a little earlier, um, there were a lot of people who are starting to question slavery. And the philosophers who are are very happy to make huge proclamations are saying things like, uh, you know, the slave trader, the slave planter does not deserve uh, much more from the African than a dagger to the throat, things like this, very dramatic. Um, and so people are starting to think about the slave trade, and particularly the pro-slavery lobby is thinking about the slave trade. and what do they do? Well, they respond in two ways. One, first by, coming by marshalling all these uh, racist ideas about Africans and two that the, in, a, in a kind of a softer way there they start putting forward uh, the idea of what we might call enlightened slavery and the idea that you know they make a kinder and gentler slavery which is almost compatible with notion of progress rationality and the enlightenment and so they uh, but you know in the 1770s they they, they pose this question, get their answers, it runs in 1774, on how to improve, essentially how to improve the health of Africans during the Middle Passage. And uh, <clears throat> this is a, obviously a, a very strange thing for us to look at right now. I mean, how do we improve the Middle Passage, this horrible uh, experience where people are chained uh, in the uh, tween deck, the deck underneath the, uh, the, main, the main deck. Uh, next to each other in uh, their own filth, terrible disease, and so on and so forth. And so they, they were hoping to solicit a bunch of uh, um, um, essays from doctors who would kind of come up with a new system, which would be much more both economically uh, interesting to the slave owners and also better for the planters and better for the Africans themselves. So you could see how this is a kind of a new era that, that uh, is quite different from what was going on in the 1740s where no one talked about that. One of the interesting things about if you think about the Enlightenment and a time of it's a time of classification and uh, what Foucault called the nomination of the visible, the nomination du visible, the idea that you would show lots of things and there'd be catalogs descriptions of things, and in the great encyclopedia of the 18th century uh, uh, edited by Diderot and D'Alembert, there is there is no. Uh, visual. There's 17 uh, volumes of plates and illustrations of the various trades and tools of the time. It's just exhaustive inventory, but you don't see the technology of slavery in this. That's the one thing that's a huge ellipsis. And there's a lot of technology that went along with a lot of tools. And uh, although slavery was discussed and even uh, lambasted by certain people in the encyclopedia, that was a real absence. It was just not part of people's thinking. I think it was almost a question of, Good taste. Tom didn't talk about that.
0: How can we think about the invention of race? Uh, you know what? What exactly is race, and and what does it mean to say that it was uh, that it was an invention of the eighteenth century?
2: The embryonic ideas of race are they're floating around in European and Western thought since uh, antiquity. Uh, there were these proto biological ideas. There are ideas having to do with genealogy, which are, which are being used and derived from the Bible. There are anatomical ideas, uh, but these things are really kind of de- uh, very diffuse for a long time. And they certainly didn't have uh, the kind of conceptual coherence that they, that take this t- that they take on during the 18th century. So as I said, there are a lot of things that are, there are a number of prerequisites for this to happen. And one is a secular interpretation of reality The human species, animal kingdom, and so on and so forth. Once people are free to look and study the human species from an entirely secular point of view, they're going to be drawing very, very different conclusions. Another thing that's very important is uh, the question of time, Um, and that has something to do with nature itself. Uh, When the contest was uh, announced in 1739, most people thought that the earth was 5,000 Seven hundred and thirty-nine years old, and and that uh, animals were uh, fixed in time, and uh, this creates a problem. In that you know it doesn't allow us to understand the fact that people have changed over time. So that's that's something that's going on. And as as people free themselves during the eighteenth century from these kind of religious paradigms, you think like, well, maybe maybe people have been around for you know a million years or two billion years or. Twenty million years, and that allows uh, people to think about uh, um, what could happen to a particular species in a very, very different way. It allows for very kind of um, ambitious genealogical concept conceptions of the human species to to take place. So, you know, without that idea, you wouldn't have Buffon, and without Buffon, you don't have Darwin. So these are super important kind of ch- shifts that are going on in the 18th century. And then, as I said, you have the idea that the animal kingdom and the human kingdom become one. It's just the you know mammals, as Linnaeus would say, and the, this allows uh, humans to be put into a classification scheme. And classification schemes provide, I think, the real infrastructure for what race becomes, in that they take they allow a lot of ideas that are floating around in anatomy and uh, the genealogical stuff, climatological, and then just they're projected right there. There's also something else that takes place that dovetails with the idea of time, and that's something called national character. So David Hume, Voltaire, Kant are all talking about national national character, and this is something that uh, uh, is, is is seen really as, as as a real property associated with particular groups. That leads to, or it also overlaps with the idea of a statal theory, uh, um, and that's the idea that humankind can be measured in various stages. There's a guy named uh, William Robertson who's a member of the Scottish Enlightenment who talks about uh, how Amerindians and other people said this too. Amerindians were stuck in the primitive stage of hunter and uh, you know gatherer, and you know we still hear about some of these things in that are vestigial kind of uh, terms. Which come from this kind of idea that humans are, can be classed in different stages. So all these things are floating around and kind of invented, or at least coalesced during the 18th century. And you have a lot of people who are going to start disseminating this idea. I think for you know this, you know a lot of these ideas are floating around, but um, you they're floating around in various places. People might be writing each other, you know, from Uppsala to to Amsterdam, but uh, the general population wasn't getting uh, hold of these ideas. Mass literacy also has a huge impact on racism uh, uh, or the idea of race. As the idea pops up, it becomes incredibly interesting to a lot of people. The lure of this idea of being able to class and explain who you are as a group, as a race, or as a species, for some people would say they're a separate species from Africans so or, or Amerindians. So this is a, uh, um, it's really a, a a remarkable time, which uh, you know, I think the subtitle of my next book might be the you know, the most dangerous idea ever invented, or something along those lines, because it's an incredible. It is an invention, and it it really does change the course of of history in ways that we uh, we still can't uh, even fathom.
0: How did this work help you uh, understand or maybe reinterpret the Enlightenment? I know you you've been studying the Enlightenment, and Enlightenment thinkers for a while. Um, did this particular studying this particular chapter in history uh, help you see things differently?
2: Yeah, I've always thought of myself as an eighteenth century specialist. I mean, sometimes you know, people would say, I'm an enlightenment specialist and or you know, I'm a Renaissance specialist, and it's you know, you're associating yourself with a particular kind of ideology in a time period. I'm really interested in the time period, and one of the things I, I wrote about in the Anatomy of Blackness is that I really don't care about the legacy. Uh, of, you know, I'm much more interested in the ideas and what happens and so let the chips fall as they may. Um, And so uh, uh, (laughs) what's interesting about the anatomy book uh, is that um, when it came out, it it was, um, you know, some of the ideas would uh, ruffle feathers on both sides of the political spectrum. So uh, I didn't want to indict people a hundred percent for what they... You know, it was not a question. It was not a finger wagging kind of book, right? So, I really pointed out things that people didn't know about Vol- Voltaire and Montesquieu in terms of their proto-racism or racism in, in Voltaire's case. And the apologists of the Enlightenment are saying, "Why are you doing this?" You know, they're, the body of their thought is way more interesting. But you know, my book is about you know the birth of race, and so that's part of it. And then some other other people said I didn't go, kind of go far enough because you know I didn't kind of cancel these these people, and so. To get to your question about what I th- think about the Enlightenment now, I, I, I think that the Enlightenment is, is super interesting. It's with us at all times because it produced both uh, some of the most nefarious ideas uh, and that's something that you know, Adorno and Horkenheimer are going to talk about, that uh, uh, you know reason pushed to its kind of extreme, uh, the dehumanization that happens, sure. And race and uh, category and classification and so on and so forth are kind of really kind of come into uh, their own during the 18th century. But you know, a lot of the, in fact, most of the emancipatory kind of ideas of equity and uh, also come from from the Enlightenment time time period. So I I haven't, uh, I think it's fascinating to actually grapple with both of those things. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is a perfect example of that in that he is embodies the kind of the, the worst and the best of the time period, both uh, in terms of like who he was, how he, how he lived his life, and also uh, his more theoretical writings uh, about uh, you know the anti-slavery component of what he was doing is, is really fascinating too, and the emancipatory side and the universalism. So the irony of the Enlightenment is that it, um, I think the Enlightenment ideology is that it ultimately uh, reached people for whom it was not intended. So the, uh, the enlightenment, the enlightenment, uh, you know, was conceived of by white men for white men, of a certain kind of social milieu, so on and so forth. But it does, it, you know, took off like a virus and, you know, it's still with us. The, the more emancipatory kind of ideas are part and parcel of DEI. So it's everywhere.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a fascinating answer. And I, I think a lot to, uh. A lot to think about. In answer about just the, I mean, people will be debating the legacy of the Enlightenment until humans die off of the <laughs> Um uh, My my final question pertains to the reception of this book. Uh, that you know, as a as a scholarly uh, work, you know, typically scholarly works they don't get, they don't necessarily uh, break through. Uh, though this book has has definitely been getting uh, a lot more attention from just uh, you know your your run of the mill uh, reader. So I was wondering you know, what the reception has been like, and uh, if there's anything that, that has been sort of in very really interesting about how people have responded to this work.
2: Uh, yes, uh, it has, We uh, you know, uh, uh, and this is, you know, thanks to, to Skip Gates, you know, we've done a number of kind of bigger venues about the book, and, you know, we've talked to a lot of different people about the book, and it's been incredibly rewarding um, in terms of kind of the basic questions positionality. I'm a white guy, black. We talk about this a lot for, for the uh, audiences. Uh, Skip often he, is a, he deconstructs race in a lot of ways too. And when people asked about you know what's it like to work with a, a white guy, he looked at my face and said, look Andy's not white. he's red, look at his face. So he's, he's always joking about this. He, he loves to kind of play, play with these notions, even though it, he takes it all extremely seriously as a scholar. So the reception has been great, um, and it's been fascinating to uh, talk about this, both and we we did something for the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and so uh, to uh, um, uh, bring the idea of uh, the invention of race to a larger public that just doesn't know about it. I'm not sure why people don't know about it. I think it's one of the great untold stories. It's uh, fascinating. It's very complex. It's um, but it would help us to figure out who we are today if you knew where this came from. I think most people assume that race was cooked up sometime as a justification for uh the uh you know pl- plantation economies of uh, the New World, and which is certainly a huge part of it. Uh, don't get me wrong, but uh the the b- bizarre context of scientific academies, the uh, legal texts, um. Uh, discussions going on in taverns and uh uh the curious debates among religious parties and stuff this these were, this was the cauldron within which this whole thing kind of uh came together uh, it's a huge uh, huge soup uh, and it's and it is really fascinating it, it, it does explain a lot of things uh explains a lot of the uh, the uh, terrible racist ideas uh, that are still still with us if you think about you know, st- a statal theory, um, you know, physiological things, uh, you know, it's it's all uh, part and parcel of the alt-right kind of race, race racist ideology. When I, I wrote an article for the for Time Magazine uh, about um, a lot of things like this, it was very short, it was an op-ed, and, you know, a thousand words, and uh, they had to turn the comments off because there were 700 comments immediately and they were, a lot of them were horrifically racist. I couldn't believe it. And they were actually trotting out a lot of the ideas we find in the book. I mean, it's really astonishing that these ideas are still out there. The same ideas were cooked up in scientific academies and other where, you know, in 1740, they're out there still. Um, They have a long, long history that is, it doesn't just come out of the American South.
0: Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. I think a lot of people would would get a lot from the book and I think you're right I think that there is uh a lot of the arguments that uh, that are made in this book are similar to uh to some of the the you know alt right far right views uh that are or explanations that that get that get used so I think that mm-hmm. you know th- this book definitely is uh, is is ammo uh in the fight against, uh, against <laughs> those racist views so uh, and, and beyond that, this book is also just a you know a, a really fascinating uh, work of scholarship, uh, and also I, I think it's 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 pretty cool that people are just more of average readers are are reading this book because it really does lead with primary sources, uh, and I think that's something that a lot of uh, you know people don't don't exactly know what it is that historians do uh, and what they work on. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Caleb. Take care. there
2: be a And I'm with